Well, good morning. It's good to see all of you. You got the memo and set your clocks forward. And the pain is real. So, uh, from time to time, I, I do, I do like to give you a little update, um, on kind of what's going on on the National Guard side. I've got probably not a whole lot of time this morning, but I, I do want to just tell you a little bit. Last weekend, uh, I was, um, doing my time down in Jackson and, um, <clears throat> had a really good visit. I, I'll just tell you a little bit about what, uh, a couple of things that were unique about this weekend. Uh, obviously you never know what, it's kind of like a box of chocolates, right? You know, you never know what you're going to get when you go. And uh, so I got over there and um, did some initial visiting around on Thursday afternoon. And then um, Friday, uh, that afternoon, I found out that one of my groups, uh, it's a, um, it's called our, it's our Talsi, was, uh, this is a group that goes, uh, so if something's going down, they will go in, they will set up runway operations is what they'll do. They've become kind of your own little tower, uh, the direct aircraft in and that sort of thing. And, um, and so uh, they're a pretty active group of folks and they've got lots of different components to them and that sort of thing. Good friends with the commander. And he said, Hey, we're going to be going down to Camp Shelby, which is in South Mississippi near Hattiesburg. We're going to be going down there tomorrow. We'll spend all day down there. We're going to be doing some IED training and some of this sort of thing. So I said, well, yeah, that'd be great. I'll, I'll run. I'll go down there with you guys. And so on my way down, I talked to my boss. and He said, hey, since you're going down there, why don't you just go to Gulfport and stay the rest of the time down there in Gulfport and see some of our units? So I said, okay. So I went down, and I spent the day. The first day that I was down there with this Towsie unit, we uh, they had a truck. And basically, we spent the whole day, uh, they were hiding IEDs on the truck and little devices, and then we would come in and try to find those things. And so they were working because uh, they would provide their, uh, you know, in a deployed environment, they would provide their own security. And so that was good. And then the other thing that we did that was really kind of unique was we did Humvee rollover training. Anybody done this? Has anybody done Humvee roller? Am I the only one in the house that's done Humvee rollover training? Uh, yeah, there, there you go. Uh, if you deploy these days, if you go anywhere overseas uh, in any kind of a deployed situation in which you will encounter a Humvee, you have to take this training. Um, and so, uh, not that I'm going anywhere anytime soon, but I went and took the training. And, uh, and it's really what they do is they have about, I went into a room about this size, and it had, I don't know, it had eight or nine of these Humvees, which are, you know, it's kind of the, the modern-day Jeep. They're up-armored, so they have all the armor. It's exactly like the real thing, except it doesn't have any tires on it. It's on a spigot. The Army designed this, okay? And, uh, and you get in it, and you buckle yourself in, and they turn you upside down. And then you have to get out. And uh, it's, uh, it's more challenging than it, it looks. And especially when you're 48 and you have a 10-pound helmet hanging off your head, I'd had a headache for a week after I did this. And they do it three different times. And so I practiced that. And then I went down and spent some time at Gulfport. And one of the neat things I get to do down there is we have a unit that just recently became part of what's called the Special Forces Command. 
Um, and it's part of our own National Guard there in Mississippi, which is really neat. And, um, and essentially their sole job is to deploy with Special Forces troops uh, and help decontaminate them if they were in some sort of a nuclear, biological, or chemical environment. We're the only unit in the entire military. No one else has this uh, capability to do what these guys do. And, um, and so it's pretty, pretty neat. So I went down and spent some time with them and, and got to see what they do. And, and, uh, so it was, it was very encouraging ministry and I appreciate you allowing me to continue to do that, uh, to serve our country in this way. Um, I hope you feel somewhat a part of that ministry as you let me do that. But this morning, we are in Ephesians. We're in we're in Ephesus, but we're in Revelation. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to that very last book, Revelation chapter two, and we're going to begin this morning in verse one. Revelation two, verse one. So years ago, uh, Charles uh, Chuck Colson told a story, uh, and it's it's the parable of the rescue station. Have y'all ever heard this? So, you know, maybe some of you have. You read Chuck Colson, you've probably heard it. So it's just a parable, but it's a, it's a good little story. It kind of is, provides a nice segue for us into this passage as we talk about the church in Ephesus. Uh, the Ephesian church had a problem, and I'll just put it out there. Uh, their problem was they had, um, they had left their first love. They had lost their first love. They had forgotten, really, who they were and what they were all about. And so Chuck Colson tells this little story, um, or Chuck Swindoll, I'm sorry. He tells a little story about... Uh, uh, about a life-saving station that was uh, on the coast. And uh, this little station was set up because uh, the place was fraught with all kinds of craggy rocks and everything. It had a shallow uh, coastline, and, and boats were constantly running ashore and, and, uh, and, and you know, sinking and all these sorts of things. And so um, the folks there uh, decided that they really needed the, an outpost in which they could rescue people. And so they got there and they established the outpost and they began, uh, you know, very frequently having rescue operations. And um, at first, the outpost was just kind of a, you know, four walls and a place where uh, they had some cots and blankets. They could bring people in after they were rescued and kind of get them bandaged up and, and set and then they could send them on their way. And... um and as they did this, the, the more boats that were rescued, the more people that came and became a part of and had passed through the rescue station, they decided that they would make the rescue station something of uh, a little more permanent location. And so they erected a really nice facility, and uh, they began to give it some structure and some kind of meat. And um, and then people decided they, you know, they really needed some nice carpet. And, and so they really updated their facilities and made it a really beautiful place. The problem was their job was to rescue people that were coming out of salt water and they were sandy and they were bloody and they were beat up. And so they're bringing them into this, you know, beautiful facility. And um, so they started thinking, well, you know what? Why don't we send, why don't we have them cleaned up on the outside first? And then they can come in and rest and, you know, kind of get recuperated and everything. And so they started doing the real cleanup work outside and, and then they would bring them in. And, and then a whole segment inside the group of people that had been rescued themselves just kind of lost interest in the whole rescue operations. They really enjoyed getting together and talking about the old times and what it was like back in the day when they were rescued. And so they began to just develop this group that, you know, really didn't want to continue doing the rescue operations. They were 
you know, it was difficult and it was hard work and um, the people they rescued just weren't as thankful as uh, they thought they should be. And um, and so uh, over time, they lost the desire to go out and make those rescues. And um, and pretty soon they ceased altogether. Uh, they got rid of the uh, lifeboats and the life preservers. They got rid of all of their bandages. Instead, um, they just had pictures on the walls of what it used to be, and they talked about it. The church in Ephesus uh, is uh, probably something along and akin to uh, that modern-day parable that Swindoll wrote about. Um, they had a problem, and um, and they're encouraged to remember the first things. Um, and so I want us to look at this passage this morning, and, and as we re- look at this uh, section, what we want to do is ask what Jesus' interaction with the church in Ephesus teaches us about Jesus, about the church, and about ourselves. What does Jesus' interaction with the church in Ephesus teach us about Jesus himself, about his church, and then finally about ourselves? So let's look at what do we learn about Jesus. Right at the beginning, um, what I want us to do is read the, read the uh, section here, and then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let's pray. Father, thanks for your word. As we come to it this morning, we do ask that our meditations on it and the words of my lips concerning it would be acceptable in your sight. And we do pray, Father, that you'll show us our Savior, give us eyes to see him, that you will teach us about the church the church in which we reside, you'll teach us about us. Father, we'll learn something that is helpful as we move forward in the mission to which you've called us. In Jesus' name, amen. So what do we learn first about Jesus? One of the things you're going to notice as we work our way through the seven churches is that at the beginning of each of the addresses, John reaches back, or Jesus, in this case, reaches back, and he uh, presents an image of himself. And he tells us, in each of those, we're learning things about who Jesus is. Um, In this instance, we get two pictures, right? So we have the picture of Jesus amongst the lampstands, which we saw at the end of chapter 1. And we get a picture of Jesus who is holding the seven stars in his, wrong hand, 
right hand, okay? So he's holding these stars in his right hand. He's moving amongst the lampstands. That is the picture that we get of Jesus. Now, if you take those two images and we we go back and we were to, to look at them, what we understand is that the lampstands are the churches, there's seven of them. Now, we've, we've looked at that. We'll continue to see that number seven crop up as we work our way through. It's the number of perfection, the number of completeness. And so here um, is John and Jesus use this image of the lampstands. What we get is a, a picture of the church. Now, these are real churches that we're going to talk about. We've already expressed that. We've already seen that. Real churches. But they're also representative of the church. Uh, and so even though the churches have different struggles and different issues, one of the things that we'll see is that we, we can identify with their struggles. We, we can, as we work our way into these uh, different churches, we will see ourselves there in them, the things that Jesus commends and the things that Jesus challenges. And so in the picture, Jesus is amongst the lampstands. Um, and that's a reminder to us. One, that Jesus knows his church, right? Um, he's intimately acquainted with his church. He hasn't just, uh, you know, we weren't just created and spun off out here and, and Jesus now sits back and says, okay, I'm just going to watch this top, you know, spin around until it dies down. Jesus is actually amongst his people. He is moving in their midst. We know, um, you know, as you work your way through each of the churches, he knows them. He's intimately acquainted with them. Now, that has both positive and negative connotations for us, doesn't it? Uh, you know, positive reinforcements and some negative, if you will, reinforcements. And that is, he knows us, which means he knows us, right? He, he sees us. He, he knows who we are. He, he's, the, he's the perennial parent in the kitchen. Uh, or in the living room when the kid goes in the kitchen and sticks their hands in the cookie jar and they're just about to pull the cookie out and they, and the mom goes, I know you're getting a cookie, right? He sees and knows everything about his church. And that's good and bad because he knows our struggles, but it also means he knows our sin. He knows who we are as a people. The second image that comes here is that he has in his hand the seven stars. Now, if you look at the last verse of chapter 1, you'll see that we, get the, um, we, we have the code, right? We, we're given the code in this instance, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Ah, interesting. Interesting image, isn't it? So typically when you see the right hand of God in Scripture, you are getting the picture, the idea of power. So in the, in the instance of Moses, let's say, Moses takes up the staff and he takes it in his hand and he goes and he moves to Pharaoh and then he strikes the rock. He's doing all of these things, but it's with the staff in his hand. It's symbolic of power. And so in this instance, Jesus is in possession of great power because he controls the angels of heaven. 
He has them in his right hand. Now, there's all sorts of you know, discussion, and you know, which we're going to find a lot of in the book of Revelation, okay? Uh, differing opinions about these angels. Is there one angel for each church? Are they representative of the angels that come in support of the church? I mean, what are the seven angels of the seven churches exactly? And I think what it, at least what it is, is it's a picture of uh, God's supportive role and his supporting cast for his people, the church. That he is willing, Jesus has the power in his right hand to unleash the power of heaven, God's angelic host, the warrior armies of heaven, if you will, to come to our defense and our aid. And so, what a powerful pic- picture, right, for a church, the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was uh, a, a church that was founded early on. It was a church that John himself had pastored. And, and geographically, it's the church closest to the island of Patmos. So as he writes this letter, as it is sent around uh, to, to be read aloud in these churches, it would have gone to Ephesus, no doubt, probably first. And um, but it was a church that was under significant amount of pressure. And so for and we'll talk more about that. But for the image to come to them that Jesus is both with them and that Jesus has the power to support them, that would have been, I think, tremendously encouraging to them. And so we learn here about Jesus and his church for us. That he both knows us, he's in our midst. The Spirit indwells the people of God. We are being built together, remember what Peter says, as what? Living stones. That we would be the dwelling place of God. This sanctuary isn't the dwelling. We could put up basketball goals and play basketball in here. There is nothing sacred about this space. All right? You've got to hear that. You, you really have to kind of purge that idea. You know, uh, I won't say, there was a, a church that I was in and they had a, they had a sign up that said, no running in the sanctuary. Um, this is God's space. Something along those lines. <laughs> no. Every space is God's space. This is where we happen to gather together for worship. And us gathering together is the special part, not the building. So if we were gathered next door under the pavilion, guess what? That pavilion now is the space in which you and I are gathered together, and it's the gathering together of the body of Christ, the living stones, that is the special part. Now, the space communicates things, right? It communicates to us the vastness of God and all of those sorts of things, and they did a beautiful job with it. Don't hear me say that we don't have a beautiful place to worship. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying don't misconstrue what happens when God's people gather together versus the space in which they gather. And so he is in our midst. He is is here, and we are his dwelling. He also knows us personally as a congregation, but he has the power to support us. And he's promised that he will never leave us nor forsake us, but will always be with us. Now, what do we learn about the church? Several things. First, The church is commended for several things, right? Verse 2, he knows their deeds. 
Hard work. They're hard workers. They are a persevering bunch. They have, they refuse to tolerate wicked people or evil men or false apostles. They've endured great hardships for Christ and they haven't tired of doing so. Additionally, in verse 6, he says that they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which Jesus himself also hates. That goes together well with the, with the challenge that he gives to them, and we'll see that in a minute. Now, to understand these commendations, you have to understand something of the situation in which they were living, right? Ephesus was a very large city, 200,000 plus. So, you know, you think, um, you, you're thinking back in your mind to, you know, Ephesus and, and uh, the first century church. It's a large and flourishing city, 200,000 plus people, which at one point was moved. The city had to be moved because, uh, their port of, their, their port area had become so silted that they had to move further down. So Ephesus was a, a large, bustling city, it had lots of trade coming through there, but the the driver of the city was its temples. Ephesus was, you know, ground center for the temple for Artemis, um, amongst other temples. So if you go there today, there's, there are still fragments of that temple. You can go and you can see it. That was kind of the driving economic engine, if you will, for the area. And so you had all of these people because the temple employed, you know, priests and priestesses and um, all kinds of other people that hung out around the temple and did all sorts of things. Okay, we'll just keep it family friendly. How about that? Um, but there were lots of things going on at the temple of Artemis. And um, and all of those things had to be supported. And so there was an entire trade industry that supported the temple industry. Are you with me? Because people were coming there because they wanted fertility, because they wanted good jobs, because they wanted an education, because they wanted uh, you know sexual fulfillment, because they wanted to be prosperous in life. And so they came to the temples and they paid homage to the gods. And so it brought in people, it brought in trade, it brought in enormous and economic activity. Well, think about that. If you're in the church in Ephesus and uh, your economic business depends upon trading with the people who are coming there to do business with the temple, uh, you begin to start having you know something of a, a little bit of a conflict in your heart and mind. And, um, and that would have been a tremendous pressure on the church and the people in Ephesus. But Jesus says, you've done well. You've withstood all of those pressures from the outside. Um, you've held on. You've done very well against false teachers, against the Nicolaitans who were, who would have been encouraging some of these things. Um, and that's a good thing. They had heeded what the Apostle Paul told them in Acts 20.29. Here's what Paul said there. He said, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise, distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you day and night with tears. Later, 
Paul left Timothy there, and he gave him this encouragement from 1 Timothy 1, 3, and 4. As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The church in Ephesus is in a city. They're surrounded by temple worship. They're surrounded by the worship of uh, of Roman and Greek gods. And it would have been tremendously challenging for them to have stayed the course. But Jesus says, you stayed the course. They had heeded Paul's warning. They had done an amazing job of shoring up their doctrinal uh, foundation and not letting anybody come in that would teach false doctrine. They had a great screening process. They did all of that very well. The Nicolaitan uh, element uh, seems to be that the Nicolaitans were people that later in uh, in chapter two they're going to be contur- uh, um, compared to uh, to Balaam when Jesus addresses the church in Pergamum. Now the account of Balaam is found near the end of the book of Numbers. And there we see the story, if you'll recall, is that Balaam, who fails to pronounce a a curse on God's people, instead had recommended to the king um, of Moab a different strategy. And his strategy for defeating God's people was to encourage them to, uh, to lure them into immorality and into idolatry. And essentially what he thought was, you know, instead of having this curse called down on them, why don't we just encourage them to do the things they shouldn't do, to uh, to become, you know, uh, uh, integrated with the culture around them and all of these sorts of things. And so that was his encouragement. Well, the Nicolaitans are likened to Balaam, who gave that counsel, which means that was probably what they were doing. They were hoping that they could encourage the church in Ephesus uh, to, you know, meld and to mingle with culture to uh, perhaps, you know, uh, let down their guard and to not be so stringent and strict with respect to their doctrinal concerns and all of these sorts of things. And um, and what Jesus says is, you hate their practices, you've withstood, you've done a good job. So they were sound in their doctrine. They stayed away from the cultic practices of the area. They weren't being lured into False notions that compromise would advance their cause. If you're a Presbyterian, you're listening to all of this, and you're 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 going to go. Well, that sounds really great. I mean, they held to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, they did outstanding. What could possibly be wrong? What could you find wrong with a church like that? And Jesus tells them what he found was wrong with them. In verse 4, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent and do the things that you did at first. If you don't repent, I'll remove your lampstand. Now, we have to work just a little bit to figure out what exactly is this love that Jesus is talking about. The only other time... And the book of Revelation, that the noun for love is used, is when Jesus addresses the church in Thyatira in chapter 2, verse 19. And it actually helps us. 
Because there, he says, I know your works. What are their works? Your love and your faith, verse 19. And then he says, I know your works, your love and your faith, and your servants, uh, your service and your patient endurance. So, what has happened there is Jesus forms a couplet, really. So, we have love and faith, which would be paired up with service and patient endurance. If you want to know what love looks like, what Jesus is talking about when he talks about love, he's talking about service. He's talking about caring for other people. He's talking about nurturing and loving and being a witness to others. Serving them um, is equated here with loving them. Faith is uh, is, uh, tied together with this patient endurance. And so if we take that and we go back and look, because... We're asking, what is this love that they've lost? It's not a love for doctrine. It's not even a love for Jesus. They love Jesus, but they're failing to love someone or something. And if you tie it together with what's going on in Thyatira, it's clear that they're probably failing to love the culture around them. They're failing to love the people who are in their midst. Love manifest itself most clearly in deeds of service towards others, which ultimately could mean giving of yourself for someone else, right? And so they loved each other. That wasn't the problem. But they were failing to love the world around them. Now, that's a problem. Why is that a problem? It's a problem because that is the primary job that Jesus has given to the church. We are to be a witness to the world. In Matthew chapter 24, 12, he says that the pressure of things that are happening to the church, those around, um, those pressures are going to exert themselves upon the church. And many, Jesus says, will grow cold. Well, that's what he's talking about. They will lose their love for the world. So, if you think about Jesus moving amongst the lampstands, which are representative of his church, think about the aspect of what does the lampstand itself communicate? What do you do with a lampstand? You put a lamp on it. What is the lamp intended to do? Give light, right? Jesus says, why would you hide, why would you light your light and then do what? Hide it under a bushel. Okay? Because that doesn't make any sense. And it, it doesn't make any sense. We are to be the light of the world. We're to be the salt that goes out into the world. We're a preservative. Uh, we're attractive. That's what light was. Light attracts people. Darkness repels them. And so Jesus says, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. Those were his encouragements earlier in Matthew. At the very end of Matthew, what does he say to us? He says, let's go out into the world, make disciples of all nations. We were to bear witness to him. In uh, Acts chapter 1, he says, 
Uh, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus had told the apostles that they would extend the reach of his church out into the world. That was their job. That was their focus. They were going to be witnesses. If you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 15. Marion read almost all of it for us. But I had him hold back on the final verse. So Jesus encourages his disciples by telling them, Hey, if they hate you, just remember they hated me first. And you work your way through chapter 15 and you get to the very end. And then verse 27, he says this, And you must what? Testify. You must testify for you have been with me from the beginning. Your testimony, my testimony, those who have been called and are in Christ, their testimony is what drives the church. Jesus drew us to himself in order that he would send us into the world. We've talked about this. We've talked about it in Abraham's life. God doesn't bless you without also making you what? A blessing. He doesn't bless you so that you can squat on it so that you can put it in your hip pocket, so that you can put it away in a safety box. He blesses you to make you a blessing to the nations. The church in Ephesus was failing to be a blessing to the nations. We don't have the time to do it, but if you go back and you look at Israel's history, this was their problem too. They were somewhat getting it right internally, but they were forgetting about the orphan and the widow and the poor and the nations around them. They were called to be a light to the nations. They were called to reveal, to expose the world to the real, true, and living God. And instead, they just turned inward. They forgot about the world. They thought only of themselves. Listen, this is a challenge, not just for our church. It's a challenge for every church to recapture that vision. Some of you were here. Some of you remember the early days of this church, the late 90s and the early 2000s when you didn't have a building. And you're meeting in a storefront, or you're meeting in gazebos, or you're meeting in homes, and you were setting up chairs, and you were putting out signs, and you were inviting, and you were, you were doing all of those things. You were talking to your neighbors. You were, you remember those days. And then you built the building, and then you moved in, and you were excited. And you may still be excited. We may still be excited. I'm not saying we're not. We are. But maybe that parable at the beginning applies a little bit. Maybe there aren't as many life preservers hanging on the wall. Maybe there aren't as many lifeboats in the parking lot ready to have people jump in them. It's something for us to consider as we think about who we are. What about ourselves? Let's finish here. When I was a boy... It seems so long ago. 
when I was a little guy, my mom made lunches for us. I didn't eat lunch at school. I didn't eat hot lunch. My mom made lunch, and I took it in a in a lunch pail when I was earlier. And then when I got too cool for the lunch pail, I ditched it for the brown paper bag. And I would take it in a lunch pail, and she would make that lunch usually the night before. She'd put it in the refrigerator. And uh, usually what it had in there was uh, it had a, a sandwich. This is a test. Does anyone remember what that sandwich was? Potted meat. All right. You guys are good. That was a long time ago when I told that story in the sermon. Devil's ham with mustard on white. She would make that little sandwich and she'd cut it and put it in a little plastic sack and stick it in there. And then there would be a little bag of chips, usually Fritas. And um, and sometimes there would be a granola bar and maybe an apple or a banana. She'd give me that lunch and she'd send me on my way in the morning and I'd get to school. And I remember I remember lunchtime waiting to be able to get to that sandwich. I love devil's ham. And I couldn't wait to eat that sandwich because by noon, my stomach was growling. I would be really hungry. And so I would get in there, and, of course, we would all gather around, all, you know, students. Some of them would be eating the hot lunch, and the, the poor kids like me would be eating the, the uh, devil's ham sandwich. And we would all get, to, get together and eat. And, um, you know, that meal was good. I, it was, you know, I would have had breakfast and I would have gone all morning. I didn't get a snack. And so I was ready to eat. Um, you know, this morning when we, as we're talking about the church in Ephesus, we're thinking about our own situation. We're not too far from where they were. We really aren't. The temple of Artemis is gone. You're not going to see that around. Um, it's been replaced but it hasn't been done away with. We've merely, we've merely shifted our devotion. We've merely changed idols. We've exchanged idols. They're much more nebulous for us today, but we have them. If you'll remember, Dr. Johnson talked about it. The, the primary idol, the primary thing that the church would, would and does deal with is what? May I remember? Wealth. It's it's the it's the greatest challenge we have because it's it robs us of our joy really, and we're too tempted to put our faith in that. So our challenges are different, but in some ways they're greater than the church in Ephesus. the The temptation to compromise for us is significant. Then on the outside, that's just the inside. What about the outside? What's going on in the world? What's going on in our country? You know, um, I would say if I had to stick my finger up that the winds are blowing and they are not favorable for smooth sailing. But that doesn't mean the church doesn't keep plowing ahead. That doesn't mean we lose sight of who we are. It means all the more we know who we are and what we're about. And we find ways to love the world around us and to be out there mixing and mingling. We've adopted some measures. We've 
talked about it, we think about it, we pray about it. We need to be single-minded in that devotion to being a witness to the world. Those are real challenges for us, things for us to think about. Jesus knows. He knows our challenges because he's moving among us. He knows we need power, we need strength. He knows that. And so exactly the way my mother provided each day for me as I went off to school, our Savior has provided for us, both in his word, in his spirit, and this morning as we get to come to the table in a meal. Our Savior gave to us a meal. He told us that we are to celebrate this meal until he returns for us. And as we celebrate this meal, it is a picture to the world around us. We're united. We're together. We have a single Savior. We have a single purpose, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it does even more for us. Because we talk about it often It is a means of grace for us. That means the meal for us doesn't just remind us. It actually communicates to us the grace of God as it comes to us, as we partake it together. By faith, the meal sustains us. And so we're going to come this morning. We're going to eat at the table together as a church a church that hasn't completely lost its way. A church that is in the fight. A church that loves the gospel. A church that is loving one another and doing that well. A church that desperately wants to love the world. We're going to come and take this meal together. If you're here today, you've ever professed faith and you've been baptized, you're trusting in Christ by faith alone. Invitation is for you to come to the meal. It's not my table. It's not the session's table. It's not our table as a church. It's the Lord's table. And so the invitation to you, if you're trusting in Christ by faith, is to come and partake. If you've never taken that step, if you've never trusted Christ by faith, my encouragement would be this morning for you is to let this supper pass you by. Take a few moments. Reflect upon the gospel. Think about what Jesus has done for you as you see the elements of the bread, his body, and the juice, his blood, shed for you. Think about those things as we come to the table. Let me pray for us. Father, you're good. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Christ. Father, we're challenged this morning as we look at the church in Ephesus, a church that lost its love. Father, the Lord asked them to repent. Father, I dare say that we could hear the same message this morning. We have done a good job in some areas. We've neglected other areas. We've lost our zeal and passion, perhaps, for the community around us. Would you restore that to a place that brings honor and glory to you? Father, tremendously challenging as we think about what lies ahead and the world around us. But we know and trust that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. And so we bless you for that. We pray it all in Jesus' name.